Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the TFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and I'm delighted to be joined today by JJ Bull, the Bullard. Hey Joe. Hey. <laughs> Seb Halford's floor. How you doing, buddy? Hey Joe Devine, I'm doing great. Good, man. Okay. We're going to be joined a little bit later uh, by Chris uh, from America. Ooh, mm, the way so we can that. talk about America, yeah. Iran, uh, the US, Iran. Uh, but for now... Let us begin uh, by uh, telling you what we're going to do. I know, I called them America. I said I wasn't going to do that. I, I, in fact, I told everyone else not to do Try that. Try to tell Seb off earlier. Yeah, did, I didn't, didn't tell him off. I, I tried just, to. I, what I actually said was, oh, I keep doing that. I keep saying America instead of the United States mm. of America or the States or the US or the US men's national team or whatever. Uh, and I said, listen, I'm the one who makes the mistake more than anybody else. But I'm, as a reminder... Because I'm leading the charge of idiocy here. When I bump into the barriers of pain, I can let you know they're coming. Um, and you've just seen me bump into a barrier of pain right there. The sugar has kicked in. Off we go. The sugar has kicked in. <laughs> um, the United States of America. We'll, we'll talk about them a little bit later. We're going to start by talking about England and Wales, but also on the docket for today, uh, Ecuador, the sad departure of Ecuador. Um, but of course, the exciting progression of Senegal. We'll talk about that. And Netherlands, Qatar, um, which I think is less football-y and more more talky. Bit circumspect. Bit circumspect that yeah. bit. Um, of course, points are bad will come later as well. And I have not had a good day. So that's going to be fun <laughs> for everybody. But if you want to avoid ever having not a good day, then you should probably get The Athletic. Visit theathletic.com forward slash TIFO, theathletic.com forward slash TIFO to avoid bad days at any cost. But the cost is very minor. <laughs> That's one of my favourite ones you've done. That's yeah. um, you can get The Athletic for £1 a month for six months, I believe, at the moment, uh, which is a fantastic deal available by the link. Yeah? Six months. Six months. Yeah. Yes, it is. Now, uh, that's fun, isn't it? That's all fun. But I guess for now, I will leave you in the warm hands and the cool embrace of... Don't know where I'm going with that sentence. The huh? round of 16. Vianetta. The round of... Si oh, Vianetta. Yeah, lovely. lovely. Always lovely. want to live in the yeah, cold yeah. embrace of Vianetta. Yes, yes. Okay, England 3, nil Wales. Very interesting. Uh, now, let's begin, uh, JJ, with you. Uh, England uh, rotated both of their wide forwards for this game. Of course, they are now through seven points uh, through first in the group. Um, rotated both of their wide forwards in the game, as well as a couple of other positions too. But Foden and Rashford came on. They both scored. Um, does this present a selection issue, do you think, for Gareth Southgate going forwards as, as the tournament progresses? Or... Do you kind of stick to what you said the other day, which was Foden, obviously fantastic player, and you know what he gives you from an attacking perspective, same with Rashford. But when you compare them uh, to perhaps some of the more defensive work that, that Saka, as an example, can do, uh, you know, the payoff isn't there. 
Yes, that's the end of the question. Is it? Yeah. That's, I've answered the question for you. Yes, you did. It's all that energy I have now. I like the energy. I think what Southgate has is not an issue. What's the what's the question? Whether the is a, a is there a selection? Issue? I mean, so for example, uh, Jermaine Genus in the commentary, we were watching this on, on the BBC. Jermaine Genus, one of the co-commentators, said, "Rashford, we're watching a starter now. He has to start." And I'm not. I mean, I think Marcus Rashford is fantastic. Scored two wonderful goals today, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that. In a Gareth Southgate team at a World Cup, that he's a starter. It's really weird because then you think Rashford is doing far more of what I've seen from England than Sterling has at all. But you still expect Sterling to play because he seems like the more. His record is the better, more better as well player. for England as well. He's, he's yeah. scored so many important goals in the last sort of two or three years that that's probably what what um, what tips the balance, I would, I would have thought. Rashford, a bit of a, a current form player, though. Yeah. 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 Like we were saying earlier, like I think the, co- the commentators were saying he looks a bit happier than he has been in the past. And he talked yeah. about that and how he's come over maybe a bad spell in his, uh, his time anyway. And he's coming on and he's feeling much happier now. So he plays a similar position to what Sterling does. But I, I mean, he can play... I, he's more of a threat just now. I don't think Sterling offers an awful lot. I know Sterling's a good footballer and works well on the team and gives you good... Uh, Mental attributes and... A bit of experience as well. A bit of experience as well. Yeah. But then how much experience do you need if you can't score a goal or assist one or really threaten in behind? You're scared of... You're playing at Sterling. You're scared of his pace in behind. And I don't see him going past people much. Whereas I think Rashford would be able to go past you because he's... He seems quicker to me. Do you think you also fear probably Sterling's positioning in the box? He's got that late arrival thing. Like it's, it's he's been Guardiola'd essentially since he got to. But well, then he's it, left Man City now. But um, over that period during his career, well, Sterling's able to finish loads of chances at the back post. And he yeah. did that for Man City for a long time. But he also was more. I think he was more functional for for Pep Guardiola. So he'd help get the team up the pitch and be a threat in behind so he can play as, an, as a, a winger but he plays in the left usually he hardly ever played on the right sometimes he would just to play as a traditional winger but he doesn't really take people on as much as you think he could he's good when he runs towards groups of players and tries to dribble past them he doesn't really do that much anymore he just I, I think he probably reads the game quite well and knows that's unlikely to benefit me or the team so I won't do it he's a super intelligent player yeah that, that's one of his I'd, always think that's one of the things he doesn't get quite enough credit for but then the younger players don't have quite that same read some of the time and they yeah. try things and that's how they go past them and they make things happen which is both a strength and a negative when you're gareth southgate because you want players who can do things for you when you're nil nil or one nil down later on in the game but you don't want someone who's going to do something out of the box when you're trying to just keep it calm and control and get yeah. a draw and, and then see where it goes and like foden everyone's talked about how good foden is uh, I think he's fantastic. I think I said on on the podcast before that he could be playing for Spain or Brazil. He'd get a start. Yeah. You, you, it's, to be fair, and for listeners' information, you've also been saying for about two years that Foden is brilliant. I mean, you yeah. love, you love him <laughs> yeah, in, in a amazing. not dissimilar way to how you love Pedri. Yeah, Foden's one of those players you watch him play, and straight away you know that that's that's something special. Like yeah. you'll see him for years and years and years and years. I'm um, starting to think the same about Bellingham actually, but Foden in a more uh, explosive way. I think and he makes things happen in very quick. Uh, moments, but during passes of play, I think what he does best is, is decision making. The thing that Guardiola doesn't like about him, well, he says he loves uh, Foden, but what he seems to not absolutely love is that he hasn't quite learned what you call it, La Posa, where you know when to slow down the game yeah. and when to pick up the pace. So when you're, uh, if you go, and it might be relevant to Southgate as well, actually. So with Foden, will do if where Sterling might uh, 
take trying it in behind won't gets the ball comes backwards passes back into the pitch Foden will maybe keep trying to go when what he wants to do is slow it down so you get your team into their rest fence shape yeah. so you can then control the pitch the way you want and also have yourself secure from counter-attacks I thought John McKenzie had joined the podcast well that's moment, what I'm channeling John yeah. I can feel John through me yes and May I, um, we all can on a daily basis yes. may I use the board to make a very quick point I think that's okay very, yeah is that okay yeah so uh, when I saw the selection and I think this is um, this kind of turned out true during the game what is exciting about with Foden is like when he receives the ball here like for, for a lot of players and I think this is probably what separates really talented players from just good attacking players mm. so like when he receives the ball here he's got where's that, here oh I'm sorry so here is um a, probably about 25 yards out just to the left of the penalty box and I've got him stationed between Chris Meppham and Aaron Ramsey and sure. just to just to the right of um, kind of between the lines in the half space right outside of the box. so he he looks like um, he's well covered. He's got three defenders there. He's um, not got an, a lot of obvious space around him. He's very good at receiving the ball. Sometimes even with his back to goal, he's got that little roulette touch, which puts him in space, which changes the kind of the dynamic of the defense. Um, and he's very instinctive, which is kind of what JJ's just said, because like, while other players are a little bit more older players, typically a bit more circumspect, where can I lay the ball off? Where's the space? Foden kind of flows through gaps in defense. There's a kind of a, a water quality to him. Um, and that's what excited me because I think, Rashford isn't the same, but I think he's kind of more dangerous here than some of the other options. Like just to the right of just just to the right of yeah, the right of the penalty box in roughly the same area. And I think I mean I, I don't know whether he spoke. We haven't actually heard Gareth Southgate speak after the game. Yeah, I think if you looked at the Welsh midfield performance against Iran and saw kind of the difficulties they had, um, particularly with Asmoon, um, particularly with any attack which kind of grew into um, that sort of area outside the penalty box, you kind of position those players who are a little bit more comfortable going out to in, and you have a little bit of an advantage there. Mm. I don't know. I, I think Saka does that too. But I think um, I always think of Sterling as being a bit more dangerous around the edges of the penalty box, and as JJ said earlier, like at the back post, mm. um, a bit more of a timing player. Whereas Foden is, although oddly enough, Foden scored. Foden scored from the back exactly, post exactly. But then that's part of his game too. It's sure. not to say that he can't do it. I just think like there's just a range to his game which yeah. I don't think any other English player currently. Okay, has so to moment. round this question up, then I'll come to both of you and say we no we now know that England will, will face Senegal in the round of sixteen. Um, who would you select, JJ, as your wide forwards, either side, presumably of Harry Kane, for that game? Uh, based on what I saw from this game, I'd probably put Foden and Rashford, because they're more attacking, more fun for me, but I think he will play Saka and Sterling. Right. What do you think? Yeah, I think so. Like The, the thing with Saka, I think Saka's become a brilliant, brilliant player. I just think he takes a lot of physical punishment throughout the season. I think that showed a little bit in England's last game against the United States. He looked a little bit leggy, looked like he played a lot of football. Um when he's fresh and when he's at his best, he's really destructive. I, I really mm. want to see Saka play that game. I have no. one more thing to say about Phil Foden as well, which is maybe relevant no. to this. Sometimes when he plays for England, I think it looks like he plays, and not to say the other players aren't all brilliant, but he plays at a different level, like a higher level. Maybe he's on a, a different plane. Like yeah. a slightly different frequency to what everyone else is on. Yeah. So you'll see Harry Maguire is trying to hit him a big long punts out to the wing and it's going straight for a goal kick. But <laughs> Foden's in the right place. He's fast. He's much faster than you think. He can get in behind teams. I think he plays a wide left as well. So you could play Saka mm. on the right and Foden on the left. That would work for me. Rashford seems to be ahead. But uh, this is what happens is that England can't quite get the use out of him because what Seb was saying when Foden tight spaces are in the box, he takes things in the half turn. If you're playing against a big block and they're trying to block you, what Foden can do that other players on that team can't is that if he receives a ball from, I don't know, let's say the left back passes it into Foden, he can take it in the half turn, but then he'll just slip it through where other people don't mm. see. So someone like Kane can make an out or an into out run and get in behind and it creates a chance, which if you have someone like, I don't know, Sterling will probably try and 
dart in behind and get the ball over the top and he won't get it or he'll try and receive it back to goal and then pass it backwards out wide and then they have to start again from the wide areas yeah. so I think Foden gives you a little bit of a uh, it's just something else that maybe works but I don't think you can see the most out of him particularly the way this England team plays he wants to play at a slightly higher tempo with fewer touches well it makes me think of that um, of that Bane meme you know, you were talking about Foden there uh, being a Manchester City player. Not only is he a Manchester City player, but he came through under Pep Guardiola. He was, you know, evolved into the team. He was born in the as city. a youth player. Oh, you think he, the darkness you know, is your friend? Exactly. Yeah. Everyone else merely adopted the darkness, but uh, Phil Foden was born in it, molded by it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. Well, that's Phil Foden anyway. Okay, fine. My, my bane sound a little bit more cattish. Yeah, I can see uh, that Chris Camarani yeah, has joined the chat. We can't hear you right now, Chris, but hi there. We'll get to you very Hello, shortly. Excited to see you. Well done. Um, very quickly now uh, on on England, um, Seb. Jordan Henderson came in to replace uh, Mason Mount uh, at the beginning of the game. Um, he played quite well. Yes. It kind of changes the complexion a little bit of that midfield. Curious to know who you think will start in the Senegal game. Difficult to say. I think probably Henderson because Senegal will be stronger than any team that England have faced. I think a little bit stronger than the United States. Um, it's pretty even, but they're, they're a dangerous side. I think Henderson, when he's fit, and this is the kind of the caveat with him because he hasn't played a lot of football this season. When he's fit, he covers his fullback. He covers the space between the fullback and the centre-back much better than, um, well, Mason Mount's just not that kind of player. Yeah. Um, I think it's a, it's a conservative pick. But then you can equally you can balance that out with an aggressive pick ahead of him. Um, I think he starts. Uh, he looks fit enough to me. There was a, a, the only concern I have is there was a, a bit of a, a rough tackle on him by Aaron Ramsey towards the end of the second half. So um, injury pending potentially. But mm. he looked great. He looked better than he has done all season actually. Okay. Uh, so very happy if he continues. Fine, he makes fine. the other players play better. I right. feel like Bellingham played a little bit better as a result of that. Like Definitely. having him there as that um, say reference point, but kind of like a stabilizing influence, like. Bellingham can get a bit drifty when he's asked to do too much, whereas Henderson, well, Henderson's European Cup winner, Premier League winner. Like yeah, I don't even know if, he's, if he, um, if that's what Henderson does. It's more that Henderson brings more like a busyness to the middle of the pitch. So he will be darting around, screaming at people, not letting them drop the standards. He trying to raise everyone else around him, bring the energy levels up. And that just makes people respond around him. Slightly different profile to how Mason Mount plays as well. And what you'll get against Senegal is that they tend to play with a very tight midfield three. So you've got maybe Idrissa Gay and Papa Gay. Is that, is that how you say yeah. his name? Yeah. And, uh, and Sis in the middle of the, of the pitch as a really tight midfield three. Kiati would be there, but he's injured now, I think, isn't he? I think so, yeah. yeah I don't anyway, think so they, they play a very tight three. Um, and so if you play Mountain behind, it's quite likely that if he takes up advanced positions, he'll get lost in between the lines. So if you play Henderson next to, well, Rice is always a six, but Henderson alongside him, buzzing box to box and Bellingham maybe floating in about from a deeper position, that makes more sense tactically to me than having Mason Mount trying to take up positions where he won't get the ball much behind that midfield. Oh, a thumbs up from Don. In which case, let's say, hi, Chris, how are you? Hey guys, how are we doing? All very well, thanks. I figured it'd be actually a nice opportunity to involve you in the England conversation a little bit before we get to what has probably been quite an exciting evening for you in the States. Um, Gareth Southgate, I'm keen to hear a US perspective on the, on this because in the UK, Gareth Southgate, we have this kind of argument uh, uh, that rotates around in a circle and it never ends and it's exhausting. And during a tournament, everyone gets quite upset at how badly England play, but then they go quite far in the tournament and do well. In fact, they do much, much, much better than they have done in the last 50 years. 
And then people go, oh, he's all right. He's quite good, isn't he? And then they get annoyed with him again over time. And the cycle continues. From an external perspective, from the state's perspective, what do you think about Gareth Southgate? Should we be happier that we have him and he's doing well with the team? Or is it fine to moan about the uh, the sort of slightly more negative football that we see? Can I say both? Is that an acceptable answer? That, there's too much nuance <laughs> for this podcast, Chris. Absolutely not. Um, I, I guess Gareth is a victim of probably the best attacking generation that England have had really in recent history. And um, correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but I just don't remember a time when you had as many as five to six to seven world-class type, especially wide players at this moment, that you can throw on and make the sort of game-changing plays the way uh, two guys that I believe I kind of vouched for earlier on with you guys last week and Marcus Rashford and Phil Foden, the way they did today. Um, I don't know if any other English manager in recent history has had the spoils that Gareth has had, and therefore the the expectations of the, the English national team fans are just high. They're just always going to be high when you have really talented players, and I think that's a blessing and a curse. Obviously, you would, you'll take it over not having the talent, but listen, he's a, a manager that has led them to a final, um, led them to a semifinal at the World Cup. It's, I, I guess from a, from a Yanks perspective, I think the guy does a pretty decent job. I mean, if, like, I, don't, I don't know outside of hoisting a trophy, which as, as you know, um, I think some people can argue that the Euros is a harder tournament to win than the World Cup. The fact that you've made a final and a semifinal in the same four-year span and potentially can be primed for another run deep into a tournament this year. I just have a hard time really knocking the guy, but he does have the luxury of having supremely talented players. Mm. I think the uh, the idea is that they are to win, JJ, but to score five goals in every game. Do you agree? You think England should do that to yes, be happy? I think that's what people want. Uh, yes, they want everything they don't have. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Okay, fine. Uh, Seb, what's your verdict on Gareth Southgate at the moment? Only accepting positivity, by the way. Okay, well then I'm very positive about it. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I've always been quite a positive Southgate. Um, uh, I'm not a supporter. I've had my concerns and I think that some of them are justified. I think looking beyond the kind of the conservative tournament stuff that we've spoken about um, on this podcast in this tournament, I think there are legitimate criticisms of how he's handled certain situations in the past. Semi-final in 2018, um, the final in 2020 or 2021. So um, I... I don't get the anger. That's what I don't understand. I don't understand the mm. uh, Southgate must go now. He's wasting a generation because the question that follows that is, okay, so you're getting rid of him and you're replacing him with whom, right? Sure. Like, who's, who's, who's your answer? Yeah. Like, um, Gary whom? Gary whom. Gary whom. Yeah. yeah. So that's probably my position. Very happy. Hope it works out. Seems like a really nice guy. Is uh, Has good statesman qualities sure which is which is always helpful for the manager it's fine 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 okay fine well listen uh speaking of generations we talked uh, on the show a few days ago jj about the the end of the, the welsh generation of players we talked about where the new generation might come from their performance today uh disappointing i think I, I imagine if you're a wales fan in the stadium or watching watching at home you you know you wouldn't have enjoyed that no and i would have thought i mean i've seen a lot of bad scotland teams Many bad Scotland teams, Many, most yeah. Scotland teams. And uh, I think they would just be up there with one of the... This just reminded me of watching one of those bad teams is what I'm trying to say, basically. They didn't really have 
they tried to play in a 4-3-3. They had to score four goals. They tried... You think they'd try and go at them and try and take the game to England. Didn't do any of it. They sat off them in a really deep block from the very start of the game. I'm not sure Gareth Bale touched the ball. Uh, Ramsey just looks so off it. Players like Ampadu will be talked about as a future for a long time. Still just not quite there. He's, he's clearly a player in Ampadu, but I just don't know exactly what it is yet. He's, mm. he's okay. Joe Allen's definitely not the player he was. Dan James doesn't really offer you anything. I mean, they're all right in certain parts of the team, but then you think like Danny Ward's going as a goalkeeper and that, that goal that Rashford scored went straight through him. Is that unlucky? Is that he bad? He's a bit unsighted, I think, but it's still, it's, you know, I think I'm sure yeah, that, that'll be the one of the three that he'll be disappointed with. And I thought Danny Ward was great. He played at Aberdeen for most of a year and I thought he was brilliant there mm. before he went off to... It's hard. He's had a really league. bad Premier League season. He's yeah. had a really difficult time. I, I was a little disappointed by Wes. The, the bits that I saw of them in qualifying, I thought every time I actually sat down and watched them properly, they surprised me with the quality of their football and their ability. Well, the, I suppose their durability and their capacity to get results. They look physically spent uh, during this tournament. It's also, we, we've talked about, um, about how important it is that World Cups come at the right time for groups of players. This feels like a classic example of that in that if you're able to take a Bale and a Ramsey who are three years younger to this tournament I think it looks very different because I think you've got some interesting pieces Keith Moore is interesting Dan James is an interesting foil um, I, I like Mepham and Roden as a centre-back partnership I don't think they've done much wrong all, all through the tournament um, and I, I agree with JJ about Ampadu like he, he's had a tough time in Italy too so yeah. every time you if you don't watch Serie A the chances are that all you see of him are the kind of the viral clips of him getting sent off or silly red cards or red cards which sometimes aren't his fault but that seems to be the only thing coming back yeah. and I think he's really talented so it's kind of he's just not quite developed yeah. yet because he's played so, since he was really young and yeah. like football managers have always thought of him as being like a wonder kid all the yeah. time since he started playing yeah. the problem is like their base level like average rating if it was a video game they're just they're just not good enough they're just low and then they didn't have a particular tactical plan that made use of any of their Real attributes like Dan James' attribute is that he's fast. That's really what he's got. I mean, there's you know, I'm being reductive. Uh, reductive, yeah. He can. He's a professional footballer for the Premier League, so he's all I, right. I'd love to finish your sentence and say reductive. Well, when I you're forgot the word. Yourself. <laughs> that really made me happy. I forgot the word. Uh, they're just they're they're too low rated. They're all like seventy sixes, seventy fives, seventy fours. They had a, they had a rough one. Well, there we go. Yeah. We'll say goodbye to Wales. Um, England progressing first in the group, of course. Um, and we will come back for the second half to discuss um the USA who go through that group second place. Before we go to a break, though, uh, we put a poll out in the live chat beforehand, asking people who they thought would win the World Cup. Now you're only allowed to have four answers. So Germany and England were not on the poll, uh, nor any other teams, with the exception of France, Spain, Brazil and Argentina. Uh, now, uh, I can tell you, Brazil, 44% of the vote there. Mm, that's, that, that's, the, that's the chat's favourite of uh, nearly 3,000 votes. Uh, in second place, France, with just under 30%. Argentina at the bottom there. I think, I, think, oh, I, don't know, I'm a bit, I think maybe people are a little bit, just because of the Saudi Arabia game. I think well, people are, are uh, sleeping on Argentina a bit now. A little bit, although the second performance was successful against Mexico, but it wasn't actually that much better. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't the Argentinian performance we've been promised. It, no. was, it needed Messi's intervention, didn't it? So I, yeah. I kind of... He is I, there, though, and he, he did intervene. There, so I disagree with the poll, but I understand why. Yeah. It you tell to... the chat, Seb. Well, tell no, them that was wrong. very mild. In no, 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 tell them. I just happen to very politely disagree. There you all. go. Okay. Yeah. What a nice man he is. Fine. We'll have a break, and when we come back, we'll talk to Chris Kamrani about uh, the USA-Iran. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? 
Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Okay, what a lovely break. Wasn't that fun? Did you enjoy that break, Chris? Oh, I'm, I'm feeling ready. He's feeling ready to go. rested and ready to talk about what must have been quite an exhausting game, actually. Um, did you enjoy the nine minutes of added time there? <laughs> <sighs> I, I guess, as I mentioned on the show a few days ago, you know, being of half American, half Iranian descent, it was a very interesting watch for me. Um, I couldn't help but feel the uh, the PTSD of 2018 when Mehdi Taremi missed what looked to be a sitter against Portugal that would have seen Iran through um, that last PK attempt. Um, I don't know if Taremi stays up. I think maybe something happens, but as you can tell, you could tell through the last 15, 20 minutes of the match, Iran was just playing for free kicks and potential penalties. And that's kind of what you expected of this team going in. I think the Wales performance was kind of an aberration. They just, they just played the best match that they've played in several years. And that's great. They were able to do that yeah. at the world cup, but it was a very emotionally charged match for obvious reasons between uh, the two teams with so much going on, not only, on and on the field, but off the field geopolitically as well. Um, I, I had a feeling the U.S. would find a way to win this game. I did. Um, I just think at the end of the day, the U.S. were just far too athletic and far too fast for yeah. Iran to deal with. Kind of like what we saw with the England matchup, frankly. I mean, Iran kind of did luck out in having a team in Wales in their group that were somehow poorer than they are, and they took advantage of that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it was it wasn't the best game of football, to be honest with you. It was scrappy. It was kind of disjointed what we expected going into this game. And the Americans, uh, you know, they, they advance. And, you know, I know you guys were talking about Senegal. I think, oddly enough, I think England's matchup against Senegal is going to be more difficult for them than the U.S. against Netherlands. I uh. think if I, th I think if you were picking somebody to choose to play, if you were England, I think England would, would have fared better against the Netherlands. Obviously, you're not mm. going to be able to control that. But I, I think I think Senegal will be will be will prove to be a very tough out against England. Ah, that's very interesting. We're going to talk about Senegal shortly, so maybe you can stick around and do that with us, Chris. Um, let me ask you, before we talk about uh, the game in any more uh, detail, uh, will you tell us a bit about Tyler Adams and how he responded to the journalist pre-game who asked him uh, about, uh, quote, representing a country that has so much discrimination against black people? Because he, he handled the question very, very well, didn't he? He did. And he, uh, I mean, as, as somebody of Persian descent, it was nice to at least somebody bring up the, the, the pronunciation of Iran. You know, we've, I've been hearing Iran for God knows how long. So it was, that was nice. Everything else felt a little hyperbolic and, um, understandably. So this match just kind of had everything going along with it, with, along the periphery, but I think Tyler Adams has been America's best player on the pitch, but off of it, I mean, you could tell that he is a guy that's that's ready to handle any sort of situation. And I think what's unique about that um, press conference is you saw that a player that was born and raised in the U.S. where players are so often given or kind of forced to talk to the press at such a young age and be candid with the press I think that played to his advantage as opposed to overseas. You see players that are either completely guarded from the media or are told to not say anything whatsoever. 
I think in this case, you know, Tyler being raised in the States and being, you know, kind of a wonderkin from a teenager's perspective, you know, the age of a teenager, it helped him handle what was undoubtedly the most odd kind of um, happening in a press conference so far at the World Cup. And I thought, I agree with you, Joe, I think he handled it great. And um, I, I hope going forward that there aren't any more, you know, sorts of uh, awkward types of interactions. But as you guys know, it's the World Cup and a lot of people get accredited and a lot of people get sent there. So we don't know who's going to be able to grab a microphone and say what. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, Tyler, again, was, I think, one of the best players on the field today for the U.S. And I think he has raised his level of play. And if he continues on this pace, I mean, I, I think he's the type of player, maybe more than any other American player on this team, that could maybe move on to a power club and, and be able to establish himself as a guy that can, you know, be that, you know, typical number six destroyer because he has the capabilities to do that okay now jj you uh, watched uh, both games but you i think you tended towards the usa iran game and you said several times during the first half that it was the superior of the games what, yeah. what was it that made you say that uh, it was more fun it was there was more action yeah uh, i like the way usa were setting up i think they're tactically one of the most interesting teams in the world cup so far oh why is that well they've changed their system and shape pretending on on the opposition and to make use of their best players. And one, one of the things they do uh, is get a lot of players out wide to drag the opposition wide so they leave the middle open, but they're so wide that the opposition then doesn't have an out ball. Right. So I could try and show you if you want. Yeah. So what they're trying to do, right, is they play in this 4-3-3. Well, in this game they did because they played in like a 4-4-2 in the last game. Right. It kind of changes because if Weah starts out in the right, he comes inside to join as a, as a second striker. And he scored a goal. Was his goal onside or offside? I can't remember. Uh, so it, was it was offside. It was offside, yeah. Right, we make Great that, finish. But yeah, out to in run in behind. So today it was Josh Sargent was playing as a nine. He had Weah come off the right wing to play through the middle. And then Pulisic, who was, I think their, one of their tactical plans today was just get Pulisic on the ball. Yeah. So he had loads more touches than I remember him having in the other two games. Really, and he scored a goal. Yeah, he made things happen because he was starting quite deep to receive the ball, then joined up later with the team. So what you have is basically Pulisic, McKenney playing the left in this game, and Anthony Robinson on the left. So what you essentially get is a 3v2 in the, on the left side. So that then drags out the fullback and the wide midfielder because Iran are playing a, a four four one one basically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So then that what would that what they would do is when they drag them out wide, is they'd have Pulisic in the half space or maybe Bikani would swap with him and rotate if Pulisic comes deep to to get on the ball, and then they have to pull other players back to help out and protect that. And on the other side, you'd have Sergio Dest would rock up on the far right to be there with Musa on the far right as well with Adams who was superb today, marshalling it all in the middle near where the well, Teremi would be um, there. And then we've got two centre-backs who push up to squeeze the pitch. So they've got really good control of the game with overloads in wide areas. And then they'd have a little combination. And then someone like Pulisic would be able to get in behind after a bit of play. He'd get into the, the box and be able to either square it or be able to get in and have a shot. And you saw him, you see him Pulisic do this in a couple of other games as well, get into these positions where he's right near to the goalkeeper, near the six-yard box. And it's all a result of the way that they carefully work out where the weaknesses of the opposition might be where the strengths of theirs are. Mm. So you've got McKenney can play as a right winger. You can also play, like, even Juventus, he plays a lot on the right, even though he's a midfielder, you think. And Adams' best trick is being in the middle of the pitch because he knows which side to go to help defend. Then you've got defenders who just protect things that's what defenders do. But it makes use of all these players, like uh, Musa, McKenney, and Robinson. And another thing they do that's quite clever is they know that uh, teams are going to come up to them and not push them too high up the pitch. They'll mostly sit in like a mid-block most of the time. That's what most teams have done against them. Mm. 
uh, especially in World Cup preview stuff I've been watching. And so what they do, rather than try and pass their way through teams, is they get the players who are deeper to carry it out. So then you get players like uh, McKenney or Musa will receive the ball in midfield and players won't engage them straight away. So they can start running. With the time they're at full speed, they can just drift past the midfielder and then they've broken the line. Yeah. And so they've gone past the line of defence by doing that and the rest of the team can get forward to join in and they're they're going forward. I think yeah. they're actually quite good. It's interesting, Chris. Can I ask you, uh, like... I think in Europe we sort of think of maybe like the Italians as a as a as a nation that embrace football tactics and and you know maybe in South America we would think about how Argentina would play in a slightly different way. U.S. sports generally are extremely tactical, right? Like it's, it's kind of difficult to participate in a U.S. sport without learning a million set plays and thinking about the game in a different way than maybe people in Europe or kids in Europe would just start to play a free flowing game of football. It sort of stands to reason that the USA players would have a good grasp of tactics or at least you know it's it's kind of it's part of the sporting culture isn't it is that a fair thing or have i just made that up in my head and it sounded good uh, no i mean if you think about american football for three and a half hours 11 guys need to be on the exact same page yeah you know if if, if you're talking about tactics so i think that makes sense and so many of these players grew up you know american football fans and you you understand what you have to do same thing with basketball but from a soccer perspective or football perspective so many of these players grew up playing overseas, you know, so many of these young guys moved to Europe at uh, a formidable age at 14, 15, 16, and basically just got schooled in the tactics of, you know, how you, how you play the game mm. as a, and, and, and from a U.S. perspective, we're still very far away from where Europe is or, or South America is. But I think one benefit that this group has, and it's a major one, is that they either grew up in Europe during their formative years or they recently moved to Europe and are basically getting schooled on the sport. Mm, okay, that's interesting. Now I'm going to come back to Chris to ask him about the US's chances against Netherlands because we've already we've already kind of heard mm. he thinks I've got a decent chance. What do you think, <laughs> Seb? I I don't want to say I'm not convinced by the Netherlands. I just uh, I feel like their performances to this point haven't actually been that instructive. We talked in an earlier episode about the three at the top of the pitch, Davy Clarsen's role there. Uh, today much the same so they played quite well against Qatar I don't know what that's worth because Qatar well Qatar were eliminated from the tournament before the game began mm. um, but they played Gakpo alongside Memphis Depay who's newly fit and David Carson behind I was actually quite impressed because I thought the movement um, that Depay offered and the ability to actually drop and actually almost sort of serve as a, as a second number 10 um, was really interesting I thought Frankie de Jong played a lot better so I'm, I'm positive about them I just don't um, I don't know quite how to gauge them yet. Yeah. But um, okay. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think that's a really interesting game. So twenty years ago, that's the Netherlands progressing fairly easily. Now I think it could be a really good contest, and I yeah. would really like to. Call They're it. like England. They just they don't play to try and do anything exciting. They just I, I have good players exactly and play right. slow. Yeah. Like I, I think that's exactly right. And there's there's also you have that you have the kind of testimony of really good players, and and um, you're instructed to think of them as an elite side because of that. And you just feel there's a little bit of cohesion developing and Dutch football's been in a strange place over the last five years and, and mm. um, they've missed tournaments failed to qualify they've cycled through managers different approaches different personalities um, and so it doesn't feel like in the like as England have it doesn't feel like they've been building around a, a single manager's personality it feels as if um, they're kind of always heading off in a slightly different direction yeah we know how sort of neurotic Dutch football has always been um, that's the cliche, and it's kind of true in this case. But there's there's so many gifted players that if when it gets right, it gets done right. If when the system clicks, 
that's going to be quite interesting. Uh, oh, it's going to be a tasty game. Chris Camrani, tell me now, firstly, why you're so sure that the United States of America are going to win with the cocksure <laughs> manner that you have. But also, uh, secondly, um, I, I had a really good second question. I can't remember what it was. Can I, can I ask Chris a question while yeah. you're thinking of it? Yeah. Chris, um, I hope you don't mind me asking this, but obviously the last couple of days um, leading up to this game have been very fractious indeed. How's that felt for you? What have you taken from kind of some of the exchanges and, and some of the sort of the uh, the tension, uh, some of the activity and the the uh, the adapting of the the Iranian flag by um, those social media accounts? What's it been like for you? I guess from a reporter's perspective, um, objectively, I just look at that move as unnecessary because you added more fuel to the fire. Yeah. And I, I just think considering how whenever these two countries meet on, on any sports stage, it's going to be, uh, the stakes are going to be high. I just felt that that was unnecessary. And the fact that they didn't keep the players or Greg Berhalter in the loop at all, it was just a, a major uh, mistake, I think. Um, from a personal perspective, the last few days have kind of just been what they've been like the last few months. I mean, I have dozens and dozens of family members still in Iran, um, you know, uncles, aunts, cousins, it is, it is a very difficult time right now, and I can tell you that there are a lot of people in the country that are unhappy that the Iranian national team didn't do more, you know, didn't do more to be outspoken um, in favor of what's going on, in favor of the people, in trying to relay that they are there for them. But as, you know, if, if you're familiar with, with how the country operates, with how that regime operates, it's a very difficult line to walk because of how... Um, heavy-handed they can be and just how ruthless they are. And um, I, I will say, I guess the romantic part of me would have loved to have seen Iran advance and given the people something to look forward to. But, you know, I I, I will rely on my, the advice that my dad gave me. If You know, he, he moved to the U.S. in 1978, a year before the revolution. He's been here almost 50 years now. Um, you know, he said, this is their, this is the people of Iran's one shot in order to change things. And, you know, people will fall in love with the, with the, uh, with the, uh, excitement of the world cup. But I guess I will say it, there, there are bigger fish to fry at this point, you know, for, for everybody back home. So it has been a very interesting last few, you know, days between, you know, with the lead up to this, to this game, but part of me kind of breathes a sigh of relief, hoping that there can be some sort of positive change in Iran. And, and you know, frankly, it's, it is kind of a, a downer in that I think this was Iran's like one chance really to advance out of the group stage. They've never done it. Basically, this entire team is in their early 30s or mid 30s. Um, I just don't see where Iranian football goes from here. There really isn't a next generation waiting in the wings to take over. So, um, they have been very good from an Asian football perspective the last several cycles. I'm afraid that the wheels might come off going uh, into 2026. Mm. Well, my next question is going to pale into insignificance uh, after the answer, Chris. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, my, my question was, you know, why do you think that the United States will beat the Netherlands? And is that a view, do you think, or a confidence that is shared by other people that live in the States? Or is that a kind of you know, sort of rogue maverick view of yours? Well, I guess I have to put a caveat on it because our colleague Sam Stayskull, who covers the men's national team, just tweeted that Christian Belisic was taken to the hospital to get abdominal scans um, on his injury. So, what about Josh uh, Sargent as well? Was he went he went off, didn't he? 
he went off, but he was walking fine after the match. Right. He wasn't he wasn't limping or anything. But but if if the U.S. do not have a, a Christian Pulisic who can be the difference maker that he has been in the first three matches, I think I might have to put a caveat on that uh, proclamation, Joe, because um, he's just he's just played the best football that he's played in in several years, frankly, oh, yeah. whether it be for national team or for a club. So um, if he's not a hundred percent, I guess this goes back to what we were talking about a few days ago. Does this unlock the the geo reina shackles does this yep. get him off the bench or does greg berhalter go uh to a player that i think he trusts more at the moment in brendan aronson who himself has had a great start to the season with Leeds. i don't know i guess i just think um kind of what jj was saying uh, this netherlands team reminds me of england and granted the stakes will be different because you're playing in an el- elimination match as opposed to a group stage match but the way the u.s were able to basically ping the ball around against England, take them out of the match, despite being um, on the other side of the talent gap. I think this U.S. team has what it takes, but how much do they have left in the tank? The Netherlands basically got to ice skate through through group play. They yeah. never were tested that much. Uh, the U.S., I think you can argue, have played three very emotionally, physically draining games for all different reasons. And I think it'll just come down for me to the availability of Christian Pulisic. And if he's not fit to play a full 90 minutes, can he give you, you know, 30 heroic minutes off the bench in the second half? Or Mm. can he give you 45 at the beginning? Um, It's a, it's, it's a huge goal. I mean, it, 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 it is able to kind of absolve the pain of 2017 of not qualifying, being able to deliver that goal and get them into the knockout stage. But without him, I don't know how tactically they're able to fare against a team that once again will be more talented than them, but a team that I think they, they can beat. Mm. Okay, interesting. Fine, fine, fine. Well, listen, Chris, stay with us now as we, like the Netherlands, skating through Group A, we're going to skate through <laughs> Ecuador 1 to Senegal, JJ. Uh, Senegal through in second place here, six points. They've done it all without Sadio Mane. Um, which was, you know, the big sort of distressing news ahead of the tournament, injured in that game for Bayern Munich, wasn't able to attend. Um, they've done rather well, haven't they? Yeah, I quite like Senegal. I think they play nice football. They have a good blend, good balance of team, uh, good players on the team. What am I saying? I'm they have tired. good players on the team and you like the yeah, team. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was trying to say. Yeah. You, you know it. I know it. You know, real good. Yeah. Um, AFCON so, winners, of course. Yes, exactly. And I think they have... There's something about them that I enjoy watching in that they are quick to pounce on mistakes by others and then race through it. They're tactically sound enough. Um, Ismail Assar has played really well on the left. So Sadio Mane was obviously a key player uh, for Senegal when he was playing. But he So we start on the left, but he actually played more or less behind the a striker. So he more or less, if you had uh, Dia would be like the number nine, he'd play behind them and create and occasionally he'd score. But then it limits, like, Sar would often be on the right-hand side, I think, mm. pretty much. So he changes the way he plays. So he's outside right, because he is right-footed, Sar. I'm pretty sure I'm right in thinking that as well. Uh, again, I am tired. So yeah. if he's on the right... <laughs> and of course, we all know being tired prevents you from knowing whether someone's left or right. I don't know what legs are. <laughs> yeah. So then if he's on the right, he obviously has to go outside his man, and then he can cross into the box, uh, rather than be able to take it on and shoot on the inside of his foot. It changes mm. the angle of your shot if you come inside, obviously, from the left, in, inside onto your right foot. So... And the blend they've got is quite good. The shape now kind of suits it or lends to them playing on the counter attack when they want to. Yeah. Uh, 
and I think the way they played against Ecuador shows that tactically they're very sound as well. Like the manager got this one dead right. Yeah. He stopped Ecuador being able to play out the way they want to um, on uh, from their build-up play, which I can show you again if you'd like me to show you how that Absolutely. works. I'd love to see it. Right. Well, because you told me to stop using the board so much before. You I can't it. wait to see this. Right. So what they tended to do, Ecuador, is they build up by taking one of their players in midfield, like Groezo would go in the middle of the, the two, so they have a good little lineup of maybe three defenders in the in the background, and then someone like Caicedo would drop in the middle, and then they would play usually a four-four-two actually. Then have further players out in wide areas or up up the top of the pitch, so they could play with them there. That's what they do. But in this game, I'm not sure why they had the midfield three, but Senegal were just waiting for them. They were they were blocking the pass from the fullbacks. The ball got to the fullbacks. They weren't dropping players in Ecuador in between the two defenders. So what was then happening was the ball was going to fullback. They'd have no pass up the line or inside to no pass up the line whoop, up the line or inside to a midfielder so what they were doing is waiting for the ball to go back then they were pouncing on it winning the turnover and then they were going and so Ecuador started getting a bit cagey and weren't playing the way they would normally play to build out from the back and so they were stuck in their own half for most of the game and they couldn't really turn on and I think by the end of the game when they're chasing it they didn't have any energy left and right. Senegal just looked like quicker like hungrier for it more up for it and I think that's what you saw, but I think it's probably with the fatigue with Ecuador having played sure. so much. Okay. Well, listen, there was a, something interesting that happened in this game, Seb Stafford, we watched this game in the athletic offices with Joey Durso, athletic writer, always keen to spot something is Joey. And uh, he spotted, I think it was a Senegal uh, scored from a free kick it's or corner. from a set piece. I think it was a free kick as opposed to a corner. It was a corner. It was a corner. It was a corner. Joey said it was a free kick. And I showed him it was a corner. So oh... <laughs> Well, that's the last time I talked to him. But anyway, busy recently. it was yeah. from a corner. We're all tired. We are all tired. A set yeah. piece there from yeah. a corner. Senegal scored from, and uh, he said, "Oh, they've got they've got a player on the post there." I thought teams didn't do that anymore. I said, "Well, Joey Durso, you obviously haven't read the book that I gave you days ago." Uh, How to Watch Football. Yes, the TIFO football book. Chris Camerani, this book will be available in the US soon, I hope. Uh, so you'll have to wait. But uh, you'll wait excitedly, I'm sure you will, to read chapter 13. You don't need a player on the post, Chris Camerani. You can tell the US team before they play uh, in the next game. I won't read the whole thing. It's okay. not another Kaufman bit. No, you're not going to do the whole book. going to read the whole book. Yeah. But there's a, love, there's a chapter. Look at that. A real world example of uh, how this could have come in useful if Joey Durso had only read the book before he arrived. The free book that Joey Durso was given. You'll have to pay for yours, but you can get them in the Waterstones, uh, local to you or online. Very I would have liked it if you did the Kaufman bit. That would have been really fun. You could green screen a fire behind him and a, and a leather yeah. chair and a cat maybe and just pop know, it back the in. camera could just pan in and he could read it to us. And pop it back in there. No, no, Chris, let me ask a question. You said before that you think England would have preferred or should prefer to face the Netherlands in the round of 16. They are, in fact, facing Senegal. Why do you think that's the harder tie? I guess uh, I know I'm riding JJ's coattails. I just think Senegal is a team that has a lot of belief right now. And um, anytime you, you see a lot of times um, in any sport, anytime a star player goes down, if the collective can come together, um, and put something special together, it can potentially take them far. And I think we've, we saw in the group stage play how good Senegal was. And it's not like Senegal doesn't have a bunch of players playing in some of the best leagues in the world either. Mm-hmm. Um, even, even down their best player and their most uh, star-studded player in Sadio Mane. I guess I will just say, um, if you're an England fan, I don't think you want to see counterattack with Harry Maguire uh, shuffling backwards because I, I just... 
going back to the Southgate discussion, um, I can see how people are mad at him that he starts Harry Maguire because I just think eventually, despite him being pretty good in the group stage, I just am afraid that Harry might be England's undoing. And this is a game in which um, he might be pressed into action against you know some of the more dynamic players on a, on a Senegal team that has a bunch of dynamic players on mm. the counterattack. Okay, hot take there from, from Chris. Do you, do you agree with him? Sir? I think so, pretty much, yeah. Okay. Perfect. No, 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 that's no. perfect. Chris, Chris, I, fullbacks my favorite well. thing on Chris the podcast. Nailed it. Everyone yeah. just agrees. Well, listen, <laughs> in which case, let's talk about Ecuador then, JJ. Oh, no, let's come to you, Seb. You haven't spoken for a while. Ecuador out with four points. I, I always feel like in a World Cup, uh, in group stages, it is, it's always a shame when a team goes out with four points. It, it tends to happen in, in, in a group where there's one bad team. And that team, of course, here was Qatar. Um, bit of a shame to lose them. They, you, you, you thought they had it. Yeah, I was quite taken by them. I think coming to the tournament, we were told about how good they were going to be on transition and they delivered on that front. But they're also really interesting from an attacking perspective because a lot of their play was very expressive. Used to see, you know, a couple of flicks, a few third man runs, that kind of thing. And it was quite sort of, it was just fun. It was, mm. it wasn't sort of, um, wasn't stodgy. It was just good to watch. Um, I really liked the Estepinan, Hincapi, Caicedo, a little triangle on the left-hand side. And I felt like it's sad to see them go. It's also sad to see them lose in the way that they did because I felt like yeah. the Senegal absolutely deserved to win the game. And partly because all of the expressive elements within um, the Ecuador side kind of vanished today. Yeah. Uh, obviously, Hincapi made the mistake that led to the penalty. Clearly a penalty, absolutely correct decision. Didn't see much of Estepanan. Caicedo scored, but... Um, Couple of, couple of young stars, though. You've mentioned them. I mean, you yeah. know, it's a fairly young team. More to see from them in the future. Well, this is my hope because um, Chris mentioned that um, Iran are probably through their cycle now um, and they will be looking to a future generation. This team will be back, um, both in the Copa America, of course, but also um, hopefully in 2026. And you, if you look at some of them, Especially like that, Enna Valencia is probably going to be gone unless he's he's mm -hmm. a kind of a Roger Miller type figure by then. So he's thirty three now, I think. Yeah, yeah, so he'd have to be, you know, he'd he'd really have to, um, yeah, uh, you know, do the yoga, I guess, between now and then. Um, but imagine how good someone like Casado is going to be in four years' time. In Capitalist yeah. these are really really good players, um, and hopefully, uh, it's a small country. I think the population is only five million. I know that um, that's not necessarily always a, a guide to, to how good a side is going to be or how good they're yeah. same as Scotland. Population. But well, there um, you go. let's hope that the core of this side can be kept together because, you know, they, they had sort of elements of chemistry, which are really interesting to watch. Yeah. And, you know, They're um, hot stuff, man. They are a good side. They good, are. They're good tactically. Um, yeah. yeah, I was impressed. And a good spine like Incapi, I think he's a good player. Yeah. They've got this good left back, Estupinian. Casado's decent. Obviously, they need to sort something out with their forward line. But if they have one more player up in this top bit, they've got a good spine. Yeah. 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 Well, hope to see them back in 2026. Now, before we go to another break and we let Chris go, Seb, can I ask you a question about the way that you wear your headphones? Now, let yes. me tell you, for listeners listening to this, of course, they won't be able to see Seb's headphones. Yeah. But I've been, I've been looking at his head, JJ, while he was talking just then. Um, wasn't listening to what he said, but I was looking at his head. And then I looked at your head and I thought, well, you, you wear headphones with the, the, the top of the head strap quite far back, like me. Yeah. Uh, Seb wears his very, almost like it's, you know, the front of the hairline. Do you think that's because, is that because you don't have the hair? No, so it, it might be, but in this instance, it's because um, my headphones are waning a little bit and I've got a little bit of alternating sound going on. And this was just the loudest I could 
right. wearing them this way. So you're not front loading them on purpose. No, it feels like I'm, um, it, it feels like this is the most stable position for them because I think they're in their last days <laughs> right. as headphones. I see. So I'm trying to... Uh, You've got the rubbish headphones. I have got the bad headphones. Well, that tells the listeners all about your position so, here in the C4 hierarchy, also, doesn't it? It does. The producers does. just automatically just, gave you the crap the, He'll headphones. be fine. It's okay. Oh, look, there you go. JJ's yeah. put his head... That actually looks kind of cool. You know, yeah. you look like you're about to go golfing. I yeah. am. Well, anyway, listen, let's say thank you and goodbye to Chris Kamrani, who uh, kindly put up with much more of our nonsense than he needed to today. Uh, but uh, Chris, uh, I expect, we'll, I mean, if you're free, we'll probably speak to you again as the tournament progresses. But I uh, hope to speak to you soon. Take care very much. Bye, See you Chris. Later, buddy. Bye, Cheers, Chris. guys. Thanks, guys. Thank bye, bye, bye. And let's have a break before we come back to discuss uh, Netherlands and Qatar. Now, here we go. What a lovely break. We're back. Uh, Netherlands 2, nil Qatar. I don't think we're going to be talking too much about the football that happened here, Seb. Um, let's talk instead about the stories. Qatar mm. finished bottom of the group. Nil point. Um, they were the first team eliminated from the tournament. In fact, interestingly, I forgot to mention this yesterday, but um, our friend Thiago Esteva texted me to, to let me know only two teams eliminated after two games. I'm curious to know if that is uh, unusually low or not. But Qatar, of course, uh, the first of them, Canada, the second. Um, they've also received a, a little bit of criticism for their performance against Senegal. So. Yeah, so I was having a look at what the reaction had been in Qatar to the performances across these first, well, across the first two games, because it's from um, two days ago. And it's been very, very harsh. Um, and I've dug out some quotes that um, are from Reuters. Um, uh, Reuters journalist interviewed a few um, supporters after these games, the first and second game, both of which ended in losses. Um, it's pretty damning. I was going to read a few snippets. Uh, we expected way more from this team. They played a match that was well below standards. Who's saying this? Sorry, this fans? These are supporters. supporters these are supporters yeah. who are actually at the games um, and who attended and, um, yeah, were, were pretty angry. Um, so another said, we excused them in the opening match. We said they were stressed as it was the World Cup and the whole world was there. But today, as in the second game, they disappointed us more than was necessary. And a third supporter said... Sounds like England fans. Yeah, it's, it's pretty <laughs> damning. It sounds um, like all fans. Yes. I, I think this is the worst of the lot. Um, so another fan, um, synonymous quote, um, said, It's a shame. After 12 years of preparation with all the local people and the Arab people waiting, and in the end, the performance was well below average. And you don't even feel that the players had a sense of responsibility. Now, um, I don't want to uh, tell people how to respond to their own national team, but it got me thinking because I was watching the Netherlands Qatar game and it wasn't much of a contest, but I thought Qatar were better. Yeah. Uh, they did seem to adapt well to having a little less pressure, knowing that the, the World Cup was over for them. So it kind of a bit of a free hit. Then I thought also that how difficult a situation those players were in because just because your country is able to stage a World Cup does not necessarily yeah. mean that you're able and um, in a position to compete within it. And no, we I'm, said during the first game, I yeah. think they were against Ecuador in the first game, uh, it was kind of funny for sort of 10 minutes yeah. and then it wasn't funny. And actually all three of us watched the TV and we all said we felt sorry for the for the Qatar players. No, I mean, it's not an unambiguous situation because there's been a lot of investment in, for instance, the Aspire Academy and the infrastructure and over time, absolutely, uh, with the benefit of better coaches, that produces better players. At the same time, there really isn't a substitute for players having an exposure to regular international football mm. beyond just a single region. And I, I know, of course, that they won the Asia Cup in, in uh, 2019. But if you look at the Asia Cup history, um, that isn't necessarily good competition, though it is. 
it isn't necessarily um, indicative of what World Cup performance will be no. um, when that comes around. Um, well, in terms of that... They uh, did play very well in 2019. Don't get yeah. me wrong. They, they, they deserve to win. They beat Japan. They beat South Korea. They played excellently. And, and, and so much so that it actually uh, instructed how people responded to them ahead of this tournament sure. three years later. But it's an awkward spot. And, and that's kind of what I was dwelling on. It, it's um, You have all these expectations but without necessarily the justification for them. So, uh, you know, Holland have, Netherlands, my apologies, have expectations. Germany do, Spain do, but they have it for a reason because they have all these high reputation players who play in some of the greatest leagues in the world. Now, um, that's not the case in Qatar, very clearly. And it's, no. it's, I just think it's worth bringing up because it's difficult. And um, well, I want to ask you yeah. about off the pitch, because obviously, you know, there's the, there's one thing from the player's perspective, but yeah. um, does the player's result, the team's result, as I said, zero points after three games, the first team to be eliminated, does that really have any impact at all on, on Qatar's, you know, hosting of the tournament? What, you know, from a, from a, from a perception perspective, does it, does it really matter does it clash at all with what presumably yeah. Qatar's broader aims of hosting this tournament would be? Well, we've been having this conversation over the last few days, like privately. And um, no, I, I, your position is no. Um, and I think I agree with you just because I, I see them as two separate entities, the performance of the team and what the World Cup itself stands for. It would have been nice, presumably, yeah, but, it, but it's Yeah, not, but in the same way that like, relevant. if you look at sort of the significance of other tournaments, I'm not trying to... Um, this, this isn't about um, economic legacy or anything like that. Just about the performance of actually the um, the importance of actually staging a tournament and what that means and what benefits you can derive from it. Then it doesn't really feel like it's impacted in the long term by how well that team plays. Because um, unless I don't know, unless you win the tournament, which is obviously hugely significant, mm. that stuff fades. Like a you know a strong you know run to the round of sixteen or you know, um, a group stage, stage exit, but an unexpected win over a heavyweight team, you know, again, that yeah. lingers in the mind and that's something that people remember for a long time, generations even. But um, I don't know. Well, I think when we come to unravel what this World Cup has been in <laughs> 10 years' time, 20 years' time, well, yeah. I don't think we'll even mention how Qatar actually played in it. Well, this because, is good because yeah. this brings me to my next question. Before I ask it, though, I want to say, like, I think... Um, I think my position is no, because whilst, you know, we sit here and spend a lot of our time talking about the football from a host perspective, uh, from, I guess, the perception of or the perspective of what you would hope to gain out of hosting a tournament like this. Yeah. It's almost as though the football doesn't really matter at all. You know, I think that's the thing I find so funny about it is it's like it's kind of irrelevant, like how well the team does or doesn't do. It's I think it's us and people and fans that connect those two things when I don't think they're really connected. But to the point that you made a second there, Seb, I'm really curious in terms of legacy, JJ, I'm really curious to see what happens to this team after this tournament. Because as, as, as Seb mentioned there before, the Qatar World Cup has been 12 years in the making. All of this money has been yeah. has inv invested in the Aspire Academy. And I think there's obviously been, um, you know, uh, an intent to, to create and nurture very, very good footballers uh, from, from that area of the world. But it's all been geared towards 2022. You know, what happens next year? What happens at 2026? Like what happens, are we going to see this team at a World Cup? You know, the next one or the one after that, are they going to become a feature? Or do you think, in, you know, does your gut tell you that they're going to kind of fade and that Qatar will be remembered for hosting this tournament and not necessarily for the team that participate in tournaments? Well, I don't think they'll be very good. It's not really a huge analysis. Right. The country's tiny. It was at 
three million just looked it up, I think. Let's have a look. Well, I mean, two point nine million. So it's like three million people. So it's a small population. Um, it's part of the issue got, there as well is that 80, 90 percent of the of the population are, are, are migrant workers who don't necessarily have Qatari citizenship. This is good. I'm glad you're here to yeah. tell me these things. Uh, it's. <laughs> I don't know enough about football in the entire area to be able to confidently talk about it and sure. tell you what's going to go on in the future. I suspect strongly from the population and what they're at now and where other teams in the region are, I just can't see how they possibly would... Well, I mean, do you think they would continue forward? to fund the, the Aspire right. Academy? I mean, obviously, you know, the 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 PSG is still an ongoing, ongoing project. It's not like Qatar will recede from football completely, but I'm so curious about this element of the legacy. Well, I think it's an unanswerable question because of this. There are just too many unknowns because it does depend on commitment, doesn't it? We've seen, for instance, um, huge infrastructural spending on um, football in China and then um, government aims changing Mm. and uh, priorities being reshuffled. And that affects the way that football, footballers are produced, um, the way that facilities are created and, 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 and built. And so you can't really answer it. The one thing I'd say is that do you remember, of course, that Qatar, where Qatar qualify for World Cups, like this, the, the, the nature of opposition they faced in this tournament is different to what they would usually regionally experience. Mm. And that's a big problem because like you, you need to have like, you need to have those kind of those experiences as a footballer to get better. I really believe that. I think, especially if you're not, um, if your domestic league isn't among the strongest in the world, it's super important to have the kind of the, you know, the, you know, to travel to different places, play different games against different teams. Uh, you, you, you just don't know. You just don't know because if it's another 12 years of commitment in the same vein, then that's a very different situation to the world cup is done. Now the, uh, the quality of our national side isn't as important. Um, so we don't know. It's just something that's going to have to play out, I think. Okay. Well, listen, we were going to talk about Louis van Gaal. We probably have a couple of minutes if you want to do that, or we could save it and yeah. discuss Louis van Gaal ahead of um, ahead of uh, the Netherlands, the next Netherlands game. What do you think? Yeah. Well, let's talk about it now, just because I think um, it's a good it's a good context for what happens next for them. I, I um, obviously most people know that Louis van Gaal was diagnosed with prostate cancer back in the spring, um, and there's a documentary out on about him which looks at his career in football, but also uh, the last kind of six months of his life and and the difficulties he's experienced whilst coaching, whilst trying to balance coaching the Dutch team with um, going through his treatment. And um, he had 25 different um, uh, bouts of uh, radiotherapy yeah. and managed to withstand that. Now, um, uh, unfortunately, lots of people understand what that is, what it's like to um, see a loved one go through that. And it's an amazing thing to to kind of have that level of resilience kept it from his players for a long time he was coaching sessions and then um going for treatment at night he was wearing a catheter under his training um gear he when the dutch actually qualified for the world cup with a win over i want to say norway apologies if i've got that wrong he'd become so um i mean he, he was in so much discomfort and physical pain he actually had to watch the game from a wheelchair uh, in a hospitality box and it's just um no matter what you think of Louis van Gaal as a personality and he's a divisive guy because he's always been pretty headstrong and he's clashed with a lot of people and you know um that kind of thing but it's um I, I urge people to watch it because it's um yeah it's an amazing display of resilience and it's just one of those things that like you can easily overlook in football because the game is so big that it becomes very easy to see everybody as a sort of a hologram doesn't it like you know don't have feelings and don't have um you know struggles 
it's just football and it's played in this kind of um, magical world all the way out of reach for all of us. We mm. can't possibly relate to it. And this is, um, yeah, watch it. Um, that's what I'd say. Um, okay. Because um, what a lovely thing if he was able to, after the, this year, if he was able to do something really significant for Dutch football and that was this last act in football. That'd be amazing. Well, that was lovely, Seb. Mm. And now for the Unlovely second quite of, inappropriate transition yeah. of the show. Um, can you play the points of pad music now, immediately after all the lovely stuff Seb said? It does feel those two. You can make it work. It's a tonal shift. You know, people understand the media and how it works these days. We can just cut between things. Yeah. We don't need filler. No. Just go between feelings. It's right, because, it, you know, I mean, there's no self-pity in the documentary. He's very much a get-on-with-it guy. I now, think he approve. See, this is interesting, because now the Points of Bad song appears within the segment instead of afterwards. <laughs> like, yeah. it's even more <laughs> melded together. Uh, it's okay. But, um, it's okay. All of our love to Louis van Gaal. Yeah, that's, you know. Let's, yeah, let's play a silly game. Let's play a stupid game. <laughs> what is life for? Points are bad, of course. Um, listen, I've not had a good day. I'm not going to beat around the bush. I added nine points. Ooh. Oh, you mean in the game? You don't mean in general you got a bad day? Well, no, just in the game. Yeah, in the game. Um, a very interesting game day, actually. Nine points I added. Uh, I did okay on my 5-0 prediction for England. I was sort of, you know, relatively happy by that. 4-1 USA less well. Uh, that was a difficult one for me. Two perfect scores today, though. JJ, you got a perfect score for Ecuador-Senegal. John got a perfect score for Wales-England. Interestingly enough, John, JJ and Seb, you all added six points. So I'm second today, which is great, isn't it? It's lovely. In last place. Um, now, normally what we would do, as we said yesterday, is we would uh, separate, uh, we would allow the person that has the higher overall grand total of points to pick first when there's a tie. Right. Uh, but of course, as we know, John and JJ are just adding exactly, uh, sorry, uh, John, John and Seb are adding exactly the same number of points every day for three days in a row. So they're still neck and neck, 10 points. It feels like we JJ. might be somehow in cahoots here. I, it don't, does, I don't know how we does would do that. It does feel like that. And I'm but... going to let John go first today because I let okay. you go yeah, first yes, yesterday yeah, in the same yeah. circumstances. JJ, you'll be going third and uh, I will be going, wait, that's all the wrong way around. Ah, uh, what happens again? How does so it work? you should be going first. I'm going first. Yeah. And, and then John, then John, and then, then you, and then, then JJ. Exactly. That. Okay, yep. fine. That's exactly how it works. That. That's how it works. So tomorrow's games. We have another four games. The first one is Australia, Denmark. Now Australia could still go through, I think. Just about. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Fine. Um, they won their last game. So yeah. Denmark have been surprisingly poor, although they are also poised to progress. So in this game, I'm going to give it an, a one nil to Denmark. Um, Seb's, oh, no, John's next, isn't he? Uh, John has suggested for Australia, Denmark 2-0 to Denmark. Okay, what do you think there, Seb? I'm going to say 1-0 to Denmark. That's exactly what I just said. You, you really to have to pay more attention. Your first prediction of every day is what someone else has already said. On this podcast, you regularly finish, you regularly tell me during segments when I've spoken or JJ's spoken for two minutes that you just haven't been listening. I feel like yeah, you are not in a position to throw stones But when, this game. when points are bad arise... Is that a different level of seriousness? Absolutely. Right. When it's important that I do listen, I do listen. The laughter has to stop. It does. Okay. So uh, Denmark, say, Australia, fine, Australia, Denmark. I will say 2-1 to Denmark. Oh, you think Australia are going to get a goal? Okay, that's nice, that, exciting. Yeah. JJ, you're going last there. Australia, Denmark. Australia, Denmark. I think it's going to be nil-nil. Nil-nil. Wow. 
Okay, there we go. Tunisia, France is the next game. Now, Tunisia were pretty good in the first game, weren't brilliant in the second game. I am fully expecting France to win the game, but I think it's going to be a 2-1. Now, John goes next on Tunisia, France. He thinks 2-0 to France. Fine. Seb Stafford-Bloor, what do you think? I am going to say one all. You think a one all? I don't know why I think that. I shouldn't have said that. But well, you know, you've said it now. JJ Ball, France, Tunisia. Uh, can Tunisia still get through? No, uh, not sure. Yes, they can. Uh, it would take. Um, they have to win, and well, yeah, of course they can because only two teams are out: Qatar and uh, well, until today. Right. So uh, Qatar and Canada were out. So everyone else that's playing in round three can technically get through. They would need to beat France uh, by more points. No, no, no. If if they if they beat France, France and Australia and Denmark draw, they would go through on goal difference. Three 0 France. Three 0 France. Well, I'm glad that we worked that out for you to not live mass is not it's fun. Is it? It's not fun for you. No, it's not. Um, Poland, Argentina. I think this is where we're going to finally see Argentina snap into gear, mm. and I'm going to go for a four two in this game because that's <sighs> the spirit goals. of points are bad is to is to go with your gut and to go with high scores. Now, having said that, John has said 1-0 Argentina. <laughs> so again, we know that John, not within the spirit of the game. Seb Staff of Law, Poland, Argentina. I'm going to say 2-0 Argentina. You're going to say 2-0 yeah. Argentina. Okay, JJ Ball? 2-1 uh, Argentina. 2-1 Argentina. When will people get bored of this game? It seems boring to me. Saudi Arabia, Mexico. Now, there's a game for you. Hmm. <laughs> hmm, tough one, that one. Do you trust Mexico to score? No. Mm. This is the problem, right? Mm, do you yeah. trust Saudi Arabia to score? I, do Do I trust Saudi Arabia to do score? Do I? Do you? I think mm. it's they're layered. There are many layers to both teams, much like a Vianetta. Yes. But which one is icy cold and delicious? Mm. I think Saudi Arabia might win that one. You'd rather eat Saudi Arabia? I'm going to say it's a 1-0 to Saudi Arabia... John says, oh, he also said his first choice was also the same. So we'll give him a 2-1 to Saudi Arabia. Seb, staff applause, we're coming to you. Goalless draw. A goalless draw. Yes. Now for the uninitiated, that would be nil-nil. Yes, indeed. Yes, Sorry. I was Sorry. just, yes. I know that. Yeah. And JJ Paul, Saudi Arabia, Mexico. 2-3. 2-3 in the spirit of the game, says he. I've grown tired of my, predict my normal predictions. In the spirit of the game, says he. I oh, never the win these the games, game. so in I should make up strange scores. He see where the goes. This is a strange way to end the podcast. A strange oh. way indeed. We all stop singing when Seb starts. And Seb is now the captain of the ship. I am singing on the deck of the ship. <laughs> By myself. <laughs> Everybody's left. It's just me and the ship. Singing, Everybody singing, singing. left the ship and Seb was still the on the ship. That's the end of the podcast today. Thanks so much for joining us and Points of Bad. Thanks to Chris Kamrani, who I can't wait to have back. What a nice chap. He yeah. was great. He is good. He is he? good. Yeah. JJ Bull the Bullet. Rooney. There's a Rooney. Uh, thanks to Seb Stafford Floor. Farewell, Jacob. Actually, we've got a Seb Tactics board today. Nice. Pretty impressive nice. stuff. Yeah. yeah. Well done. I liked how you moved those two players on the board. Uh, Craig and uh, Don in the producer's square over there. Thanks very much for your, all your hard work and assistance today. And we will see you tomorrow with more from the World Cup. <laughs> <laughs> and Seb is on the ship. Oh, Seb is By on the ship. On the on ship. His own.
on the deck singing away in a storm. Wind is howling. Sailing into the sand now.